you found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by subscribing or by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Diggin' Oak Island. Welcome to the start of what I guess we can unofficially call Season 2 of the Diggin' Oak Island Podcast. First, let me just say a huge thank you to everyone who stuck with us, everyone who stayed subscribed, stayed engaged with the show on our social media, and just generally continued to support the podcast during this you know, really difficult time. Honestly, I did not think that my summer break would last as long as it has, but uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic wreaking havoc on so many aspects of all our lives, really, I was forced to delay new episodes for a few more weeks than you know I had originally thought. But we're back now, at least for the foreseeable future. And folks, let me also say, I hope this show finds all of you, everyone listening, healthy, safe, and well. Uh, I know my life and that of my family has certainly been uprooted and tossed around a bit, like so many of yours, I'm sure. But, you know, everyone here is healthy and everybody's well, and that's probably the best we can ask for right now. And, and I hope that you can say the same for you and your family as well. Uh, producing a podcast like this is honestly almost entirely a labor of love for anyone who doesn't. So far, I have not made a single dime off this podcast, and I don't see it becoming a profitable endeavor anytime soon. Although, hope springs eternal, I guess. You never know. Uh, each episode released takes me hours and days worth of research, writing, recording, editing, and so on. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. I absolutely love doing it. But when life invades, like it has recently with this pandemic, the podcast gets put on hold. Uh, but things have managed to calm down just a bit, and it looks like I now have enough time over the next few weeks to again begin researching and producing a series of podcasts leading up to what we all hope will be season eight of The Curse of Oak Island. So the plan for this summer and into the early fall is to do a series of shows where we continue our timeline of the history of the Money Pit Dake. Now, if you remember, we started that project last summer and ended off with the Truro Company. This summer, we're going to pick up where we left off last year. So if you didn't listen, uh, you can go back and get yourself kind of up to speed. So shameless plug time, I guess. You can listen to my September 11th, 2019 podcast called The Discovery of the Money Pit, which will talk about how the guys... You know, Daniel McGinnis and Anthony Vaughn and John Smith found the money pit and their initial attempts at digging there. Um, and then you could go on to the October 2nd, 2019 podcast on the Onslow Company, which was the first group that they put together in their very early 1800s. And then we ended off on October 15th with the aforementioned episode on the Truro Company. Now, I stopped there last year because the Truro Company was the last searcher group to include any of the original discoverers of the money pit. This year, we're going to be moving into that sort of next phase in the history of the dig where things do get more intense. And honestly, more and more guesswork starts to come into the equation here. But uh, just, just, just keep listening for all that. Also this summer, I plan on diving deeper into a, a couple of different Oak Island-related historical subjects. We did that last summer, too, with podcasts on piracy and the Templars and others. And uh, finally, I do hope to conduct a few interviews with experts who might help us in our search for the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. So stay subscribed to this feed, and I'll keep you posted if anything changes in my plans here. Now, for this particular episode, we're not going to do any of those things I just mentioned. Instead, today, I just want to answer a few of your emails. And with that in mind, since we already mentioned season eight, the number one thing I get asked about these days is if I think there will actually be a next season for The Curse of Oak Island. 
I also get asked a lot something, you know, some things along the line of uh, are film crews there and have they begun filming yet or are there work crews there who've started digging and searching and drilling and all that stuff on the island? You know, that sort of thing. So let me address that right off the top here because that question's getting asked all over the place. First of all, nothing has been announced or made official in any way. The History Channel has not announced anything regarding season eight. Nor has the production company, really. Prometheus and the cast have all been predictably tight-lipped about the whole thing, but that's nothing unusual. They do that every summer. All we can go on, really, the only good information I have to give you here comes from a wonderful woman named Karen who has a Facebook page called Oak Island from the Other Side of the Causeway. That's right. Karen actually owns the property directly across the causeway from Oak Island, and she often posts photos of what seems to be just about every truck, trailer, excavator, and drill that makes its way over to the island. It's a fascinating page. Go give it a like on Facebook if you haven't already. Um, As of about mid-June or so, she had been reporting a lot of activity on the island, lots of heavy gear and equipment and stuff crossing the causeway, Uh, including in that was a truck from Huntley's Sub-Aqua Construction. That's the company, if you remember, that included divers Mike Huntley and I believe also John Chatterton, both of those guys dove down into 10x back in season four or so. Uh, She's also seen trucks from Choice Sonic Drilling, who we've seen before as well. They're heading over to the island. Um, Also other dump trucks, cranes, heavy equipment. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean all that stuff is for the dig project or for filming or anything like that, but it seems pretty clear that work is happening, that the search continues in one way, shape, or form. Now, on June 13th, She reported on a meeting she had with Doug Kroll, and she said that, uh, quote, turns out they will be filming The Curse of Oak Island starting right away with a film crew of four and team members from NS, and she means Nova Scotia there. Then on July 4th, she posted a photo of a sign warning anyone going to the island that the area is being used for photographing and video recording and film footage and that kind of thing. Uh, So obviously some of that is going on. And also just this week, she reported that there was a rumor going around the area, going around town, you know, that Rick Lagina uh, was in town and he was on the island. But she hasn't been able to confirm that at the time I'm recording this show. Um, So if anything changes there, you know, just check that page for updates or I'll I'll even post it on my Facebook page as well in the Twitter feed. Um, You know, it looks like Rick is there. For those not up on all the news, there is a travel ban currently in effect between Canada and the United States. Uh, That will certainly limit how many of the Americans that are part of the cast can be on the island at this time, at a present time. I believe that ban is in effect until July 21st currently. Uh, And I would guess at the rate we're going here in the United States with regards to the pandemic that this ban will likely be extended beyond that date. Now, could Rick Lagina have found a way onto the island anyway? Yes, he certainly could have. I don't want to go too far down to the legal details of the travel ban here, but it is possible for sure. Uh, For one thing, he can probably get into the country and self-quarantine on the island for 14 days pretty easily, I would imagine, especially considering that he's a business owner and, uh, you know, and uh, all the other things that he's not just coming there to go to a beach or something like that, you know. Uh, So just off the top of my head. Uh, considering all this, I would guess that Marty Lagina, Craig Tester, Jack Begley, Alex Lagina, and even Gary Drayton will all be probably spending significantly less time on the island this summer than in past years. Uh, although now that I think of it, Marty being a landowner, uh, it might be easier for him to get there too. But but here's the thing with Marty. Um, 
with these quarantine regulations, I would imagine Marty's availability would really depend on whether his other business obligations and ventures would allow for him to be away from them for an extended period of time. I mean, he can't just pop there up to Oak Island for a few days and then fly back. Uh, That traveling back and forth uh, really is the biggest issue here with that ban. So if nothing else, I think I can say this with some level of certainty for season eight, uh, at least from the viewer's perspective. It is going to be very different from past seasons, and we've mentioned this before on the podcast. What exactly that means? Well, I mean, who really knows at this point? I'd imagine we'd see, you know, a lot of video conferencing, you know, plenty of theorist sessions and that kind of thing over video conferencing, and uh, more than our fair share of Laird Niven's work and, you know, Doug Kroll helping out, people like Billy Gerhardt doing some digging. Um, also, I would imagine we're probably going to see fewer episodes than we did in season seven. I have a hard time seeing um, with the travel restrictions and all the restrictions going on that they'll be able to film you know, 20 plus um, episodes, but who knows? They always have a lot of extra footage. You always hear that with people who've been on the show. Uh, So who knows? Um, But at least that seems like a likely scenario. I'm also starting to hear rumblings of season eight, not debuting until much later in the year. It was usually in the fall, so we might be pushed back into the winter and perhaps not even until 2021. I mean, there. That's not great news, but the good news in all this is that it does look to me, at least in my opinion right now, that a new season, a season eight, is really something of a fait accompli for the History Channel. They're going forward. They're going to create a season eight in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Thankfully, that means we're going to get some Oak Island content this winter. Uh, Again, I'll do my best to keep my ear to the rumor mill here and uh, report whatever I might discover. Now, like I said, what I wanted to do in this show is answer a few of your emails that uh, you sent to me after the the last episode that we recorded. And folks, uh, if you have any emails you want to send me, um, any questions, any any observations you want me to talk about on the air or read, I'm really pretty good at answering almost all of the those that I get from you guys. So just email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com, or you can certainly... Um, direct message me through Facebook or through Twitter. Facebook, probably a little bit better. I'm not as active on Twitter as I should be. Uh, Full disclosure here with regards to all of this, I planned on making my first podcast back a show about the next step in the timeline, about the Oak Island Association, they were called, Uh, but I'm just not quite done yet with the research on that one. So instead of delaying another week and just keeping this delay going, um, you guys really sent a couple of great emails that are uh, really just too good to wait on and come up with a couple of great topics that I just wanted to discuss and thought made a good show. So the first email comes from a listener with the incredibly beautiful name of Dave. (laughs) And he writes, "Uh, I wanted to throw my nickels worth inflation from two cents. That's a good point, Dave. Uh, In on the log that was dated to the early 1700s. Because they dated this hand-hewn log to very early 1700s, that doesn't mean the tree was cut in shape then. Imagine your guy cutting to create timbers in the late 1700s. It's hard work cutting down a large tree. If you found a tree on the ground that was a proper size, you would use it. So the tree might have died in 1705, say, but could have been cut and shaped in 1760. Still no mean feat, but I always think this when they date something. As if that proves the tree was chopped down by an original depositor. Dave, in a sense, you're correct. 
Um, the year this tree actually died is indeed the year that we get from the results of this dendrochronology or tree ring testing. It's an incredibly accurate dating method with a 90 plus percent confidence rate, really. Uh, but you're right. It doesn't answer the questions, did the tree's demise come in the same year that these results suggest? And did its demise come at the hands of the same folks who then placed it hundreds of feet underground as part of a treasure shaft? Well, I suppose the only way to answer that is to say not necessarily, but I do think I still tend to lean towards answering yes to some degree <laughs> to those questions. And let me tell you why I feel that way. You said, quote, it's hard work cutting down a large tree. If you found a tree on the ground that was proper size, you would use it. And you are absolutely correct. But it's also, at least I would imagine, kind of time consuming to traipse around an unknown island looking for an old felled tree. It's just the right size you need and which hasn't already rotted out, at least to some degree, by the years and also by the North Atlantic's famously harsh weather. Anyone who lives near the ocean will know just how destructive the sea can be, even to things on nearby dry land. Uh, the wind, strong storms, and especially just the salt in the air can really eat away at literally everything there. Uh, so my point is this, and keep in mind, I'm by no means an expert in the subject here, but from my experience on the Atlantic coast, a tree that has died of natural causes, so to speak, and came down that close to the North Atlantic is going to rot out pretty darn quickly. So even if this was a tree that was not purposely cut down by whoever it is we are talking about here, the dating of the mid-18th century or 1705 or whatever date you come up with is still probably pretty darn close to when this all actually happened. The chances that the depositor, or whatever we're calling them, happened to find a decades-old tree that was just the right size and still in good structural shape to use for these purposes just seems like a long shot to me. And having a tree lying down on the ground in Oak Island, a dead tree in Oak Island for 50 plus years just seems a long shot, man. It just does to me. At least it, at least it does when compared to the idea of, you know, just simply looking, picking out a tree you like and taking an axe to it. Uh, I hope I'm making sense here. Now, Dave, I hear this a lot. Whenever this dendrochronology happens, you hear this all over the social media, and people have asked me this kind of thing before. You're not alone by any means with this question, and I really do get it. I get what you're saying. I get your skepticism in all this, and I understand it, and, and I don't discount it. The date is possibly not the exact date, and using that exact date as just that, the exact date of what happened, seems a little bit of an exaggeration of what this dendrochronology is actually telling us. You know, meaning that just because the tree died in 1705 or 1761 doesn't mean the hole it was discovered in was also dug in that year. But I have a hard time not concluding that the hole wasn't at least dug sometime pretty soon thereafter, and not say decades and decades later. Anyway. There you go. Thank you, Dave, for the question. It really is something to think about here with this new use of dendrochronology by the team. I hope my answer at least made some sense. Uh, let me also add this. I'm really just guessing here. I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this field, and, and uh, I don't want to pretend to be, um, but it just seems logical to me. I don't know. I'm willing to hear arguments. Let's move on to another question. This one comes from a listener named Peter. Peter writes, Backdoor? 
Find the back door? Where? Ask engineers. Where is the hidden water source, underground springs, or the ocean? Ask engineers what is possible. Has the show ever shown an interview with an engineer or a historian who's an expert on old engineering methods? Makes no sense. Shafts, a paved area in the swamp, perhaps a sunken ship in the swamp. How? How could these things have been done? Please do an off-season show with engineers. Find the answers, please. Peter, your passion is inspiring on this. But in a word, we already have. There have been geologists, historians, mining experts, and yes, a copious amount of engineers working the island throughout the decades, all looking for things like sunken ships, a hidden water source, a back door into the money pit, and how all of that could be possible. You know who happens to be a well-credentialed and successful engineer? Marty Lagina. You know who else? Craig Tester. So for all intents and purposes, you really have been listening to interviews with engineers going back all the way to the very first episode of the Curse of Oak Island series. Now, Peter, I'm using you as a guinea pig here because I have also, just like the last email, seen this question asked a lot. Now, be that as it may, I don't want to shortchange you here with your question, so, uh, but I, but I want to give credit where credit is due. The thing about these guys, Marty and Craig, is that they really are often their own experts with this project, and that's something that I think we don't always get a good feel for on the show. These guys got into this treasure hunting business because, you know, among other reasons, they felt they had some level of expertise to bring to the table. A knowledge that could help them solve the mystery. A knowledge that maybe others didn't have. Remember, these guys never planned on having television cameras here. They never planned on having this inflated budget that goes with television cameras being there. And, and they never planned on having this seemingly endless series and team of experts that they can bring onto the island from, you know, from all over the place. From, from universities everywhere in Canada and all over America. When they came to Oak Island... All this team really consisted of was three guys, two brothers and a college buddy. One of these three guys had a passion and an extensive knowledge of the history of the island, that being Rick. While the other two, Marty and Craig, had a lot of money and years and years worth of experience in digging and searching underground. And that experience as an engineer. So I guess, Peter, what I'm really trying to say is that I do often think the show does something of a disservice to the level of expertise that both Marty and Craig possess. It often seems as though they're portrayed on the show as like maybe just, you know, project managers or, you know, money guys or, or maybe even just some kind of, you know, reality TV host or something. I don't know. But they're very rarely portrayed as the engineers that they are, because in reality, that's what they both are. They're both engineers who have made piles of money as engineers. I think it's safe to assume that Marty and Craig have spent many a day, many an hour in the war room, in their offices in Traverse City, Michigan, or wherever they might be, trying to apply their expertise, their years of digging and exploring for fossil fuels, their years of studying to be an engineer in, in universities and uh, working their way up into companies. I, I, I think it's safe to assume that they've tried to apply that expertise to these very ideas that you mention here of how a sunken ship could be there, how um, you know uh, w hidden water sources could be used. I mean, that, that alone 
their expertise in the fossil fuel business or the energy business certainly seems to apply pretty well. And just so you don't think I'm only focusing on the current, look at the history. I mean, in the, uh, in the 1800s, Jotham McCulley was a mining engineer. Uh, John Pitblato, a very famous guy in this business, was a drilling engineer. In the 1930s, you had Harry Bowden, who was a marine engineer. In 1938, or in the, again in the 30s, you had a guy named Erwin Hamilton, who was a professor of mechanical engineering at NYU, working on the island. And that's just to name a couple there. And besides engineers, you had surveyors like Fred Nolan, uh, Robert Dunfield, who we're going to talk about next. He was a geologist. So there's been a lot of expertise on the island, including engineers. And I think having mentioned all that, it's important to also point out here that um, you know, Marty and Craig, just like all those guys, uh, you know, they're not the first people to come to Oak Island confident in their abilities. All those other people I mentioned certainly did uh, come there confident that their ability and their previous work experience was going to give them the edge, um, you know, make them special here and be the ones to finally solve the Oak Island mystery. Uh, it's a very popular and old story on this island. Anyway. Thank you again for the email, Peter. I hope that's a good answer for you. I hope I gave you there what uh, what you wanted to hear. Um, I'm not saying that you're wrong. You know, I would love to hear sort of a engineering analysis. My guess is that that's exactly what the engineers that are there now have already done. And Prometheus just finds it boring. <laughs> Think about it, right? Uh, anyway, thanks again for the email. I really hope you're doing well. And finally, we have one last email. This one comes from a listener named Andy who asks about one of my favorite subjects regarding Oak Island. He writes, my question is about Robert Dunfield and his excavations at the Money Pit. The footage shown in the show shows a massive crater being dug by Dunfield. And repeatedly on the show, we are told that his approach is suspect to destroying markers left behind by the depositors. However, in recent seasons of the show, we've been told we're looking for Shaft 2 and other proximity-related searcher tunnels to the money pit. My question is, how are these searcher tunnels still intact when the massive excavation took place? My understanding was that Dunfield's hole collapsed and was refilled in with Dunfield leaving empty-handed. Surely this could also mean that things pulled from the Lagina's excavations could be hundreds of feet away from their original placement, both in horizontal and vertical positions. Love the podcast and look forward to hearing your thoughts. Andy from Coventry in the UK. Andy, I think the first place to start, for you at least, is to by going to our Facebook page or our Twitter feed, at Diggin' Oak Island, and take a look at the photo that I'm placing there really as we speak here. Uh, it's a photo of Mr. Dunfield, and he has already been lowered and is standing on a platform here or a, or a, or a, a plank, really, uh, down at the bottom of his now famous crater. Take a look at that, uh, that picture first, and this should give you a good idea of what I'm about to say here. But first, before we do that, let's back up a bit uh, so I can tell you a little bit more about this man who really has become something of the modern villain of the Oak Island treasure hunt. Robert Dunfield was born in Colorado in 1925. He served in the military, I think the Army Air Corps, if I'm not mistaken, and that was during World War II. He then later moved to California, where he earned a geology degree from UCLA. He worked for Standard Oil in South America for a time. Again, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was in Colombia and Venezuela, although maybe I'm leaving one or two countries out in that uh, time spent down there. Uh, my memory can be sketchy sometimes, this kind of thing. Uh, after his time with Standard Oil, he earned quite a bit of money from other investments he made in the oil business. 
Now, he would often say he became interested in the Oak Island legend as a boy after reading about it in a local newspaper. From that point on, he always wanted to get involved somehow in the Oak Island treasure hunt. So in 1965, after earning a you know, a good amount of wealth, really, from his investments, he contacted Mel Chapel, the owner of the island at the time, and he tried his best to get onto the island and get involved in the dig. The two men agreed that Dunfield would become an investor in the Robert Restall operation. And Restall was running the search at the time and was sort of in the middle of his work. Now, just to tell you a bit more about the man, um, within days of the Restall tragedy, within days of the death of Robert Restall uh, and his son and I believe two others uh, who worked on the island with them, Robert Dunfield moved to take control of the island, control of the search. In what was really something of an ugly scene, I would imagine, Dunfield apparently got the Restall's own lawyer to convince the grieving widow, Mildred Restall, who was now in control of the search and of all of the, you know, the contract that uh, Robert had with uh, Mel Chapel. Uh, the lawyer and Dunfield convinced her to turn over her search contract to Robert Dunfield. Um, let me just read you a bit of what Restall's daughter, Lee Lamb, wrote about this meeting in her book, Oak Island Obsession. Uh, side note, it's a book any Oak Island fan should have, by the way. Uh, she writes, I asked Dunfield if we did choose him to head up the operation, just how he would go about the work. He hesitated for a moment, then brightened and said, quote, oh, I will continue the search in exactly the same manner as Bob Restall would have. Every effort will be made to preserve the island. That satisfied me. So they handed over control to Mr. Dunfield. But that is nowhere near <laughs> what Dunfield actually did on Oak Island. Again, here is what uh, Lee Lamb writes in her book. Soon, heavy equipment gouged out the money pit area, and it was not long before the south end of the island was no longer recognizable. The beach at Smith's Cove was laid bare by bulldozers. Even the huge wild rose bush that had been a landmark on the beach and a backdrop for island picnics for as long as anyone could remember was torn out. Something significant might have been buried under it. Uh, many of the evergreen trees that comprise the southernmost tip of the island were brought down, inviting major land erosion. In the aggressive search for treasure that followed, the marker stones, shafts, pits, and tunnels that so typified the mystery of Oak Island received no special treatment. Soon the plateau that held the money pit became a vast, uneven, water-filled crater, more reminiscent of a saturated moonscape than the Garden of Eden it once had been. Now, what she meant by that last part about the money pit was that Dunfield decided to do exactly the opposite of what Bob Restall was doing. The Restalls loved Oak Island, but Dunfield instead just excavated and bulldozed the whole darn place, really, laying waste to most of the eastern side of the island in his search, digging a huge hole and filling it all back in with what seems now like little care for the island's beauty or history. So, Andy, for years and years... And even much of the time I was producing this podcast, honestly, I felt the same way as you do about all this. Dunfield's crater, and Lee Lamb uses that word uh, in air quotes, even calling it a, a moonscape there. Uh, Dunfield's crater seemed to be the, most, the single most important and really most often ignored piece of history with regards to the Lagina's current search for the original location of the money pit. But with the help of my friend John Frick, perhaps the social media's most important Oak Island researcher and historian, uh, I'm starting to turn around a bit on this idea. You see, Mr. Frick turned me on to some great photos of Dunfield's work. 
up to that point, I had really only read about Dunfield's time on Oak Island in books and really didn't see too many photos of it. I mean, there's a few here and there. But now take a good look at that image I mentioned earlier on our social media pages. You could see how, you know, with all respect to Miss Lamb and everybody else who's written, the word crater doesn't really work here. When we hear that word, crater, we think of things like, uh, you know, the, we think of those huge circular geological depressions left by things like, oh, I don't know, meteor impacts and volcano eruptions, that kind of sort of thing. You know, places like, um, uh, what's that called? Meteor Crater National Park in Arizona or Crater Lake in Oregon. Uh, and also, you know, as Lee Lamb said, a lot of the craters that we see on the surface of the moon. But that's not really what Dunfield did here. I mean, if you take some pizza dough, right, and just to belabor the point of it, uh, take some pizza dough and press a golf ball into it. When you take the ball out, you have what we often think of as a crater. What Dunfield did would be more like, I don't know, sticking the bottom end of an ice cream cone into the dough. <laughs> so while Dunfield did indeed dig a 100-foot wide and 140-foot deep hole in the Money Pit area, calling it a crater which, like I said, it's almost always referred to as a crater by writers and historians, I mean, all over the place. But calling it a crater really isn't very accurate, at least not in, doesn't square with our idea of what a crater is. It might have been 100 feet wide at the top, but just look at this photo. It's not even 15 feet across at the bottom where you see him standing there. The point is, you could see now how earlier shafts might have survived Dunfield's destruction. At least certainly at depths where Dunfield's crater is getting, you know, smaller and smaller and, you know, way less than 100 feet wide. And also, it's important to note that current research seems to be suggesting that Dunfield was way off on his estimation of where the money pit was actually located. That he dug, you know, well off the correct spot. And therefore, the original shaft might still be to some degree intact. If that's true, then it's not hard to imagine you know, not hard at all to imagine how this giant dig might not have fully impacted the money pit or even the first few surrounding searcher shafts. Uh, might not have really gotten in down there much at all. Now, I'm not entirely sure that this conclusion that I'm saying to you, that Dunfield missed that badly, isn't uh, some to some extent wishful thinking on the part of contemporary researchers Uh but in an attempt to remain positive, let's at least say that there is certainly some hope that this conclusion is true and that the money pit and shaft two, at least down at, a, at you know, at depths, are, are still there and can still be found. Thanks again, Andy, for the email. I, I hope to talk a lot more about Mr. Dunfield and the rest of all family in the not too distant future. Uh, those are both amazing stories and two of the most fascinating chapters in the history of Oak Island. So that's it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Again, thank you so much for sticking around for these few weeks. Uh, don't forget, subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. That way, the show will be available to you immediately, really. And, and if you do enjoy the show, um, I can't emphasize enough how much it helps to rate and review us uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps somehow to get the word out on us and get more listeners to the show. You can also follow us on Facebook, as I've mentioned a couple times. We're at Diggin' Oak Island. Uh, same on Twitter. Uh, give us a like there. Give us a follow there. It would be much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email 
at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to the Digging Oak Island podcast.